Fasting myth number two. Fasting is dangerous for your body because you'll go into starvation mode. Nope, that's a myth. Fasting regulates your insulin levels and triggers biological processes that actually slow aging called autophagy. Fasting also improves stem cell regeneration. It's great for your microbiome and it reduces inflammation and enhances how your body performs all the time. You can do it without pain. All you've got to do is go to fastthisway.com, order my brand new book that I spent thousands of hours writing, and I will teach you everything in the book for two weeks. Fastthisway.com. I'll see you there. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about something awesome. It's metabolic flexibility, metabolic fitness, and how you can actually look at it in real time and what you can learn from doing that. Our guest today is Josh Clementi, who is a founder of Levels Health. He started this company the day he figured out his metabolic dysfunction was screwing up the way he performed during the day. Sounds familiar. I had the same thing happen to me in Silicon Valley. But he found his glucose levels were all over the place in the pre-diabetic range. And he's a mechanical engineer and a CrossFit level two trainer, but his day job is designing life support systems for astronauts and rescue systems for emergency response teams. So it's this weird combination of engineering brain wanting to go to Mars and stuff like that, as well as why can't I hack this stuff myself? So this is, uh, if there was a stereotypical perfect guest to talk about biohacking and controlling your own biology and hacking everything, this is the man. Josh, welcome to the show. Dave, couldn't be happier to be here. All right. You're a SpaceX guy figuring out how to keep Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley uh, alive on their May 2020 trip to the ISS. Um, good work. Uh, they're alive. So a mission accomplished, right? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think so. I had an opportunity to talk with uh, the president of SpaceX, uh, Gwen Shotwell, uh, a little while ago. And she's been there for, I think, 17 years now. Oh, yeah. From the beginning. And I, I, I said, okay. You've been there for 17 years, and I know that you're hardening systems to go to space. And if you're not an engineer, hardening a system means making it so that it's highly resilient and it'll handle radiation and stress and gravity and all that kind of stuff that, that we don't have to deal with as much on Earth. And, and my question for her was, have, like, how much have you invested? How much work have you done in hardening humans to go into space? And she looked at me and she goes, no one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> we haven't done that. And I'm like, how is it that we can like hack spaceships to carry mushy blobs of not very metabolically strong flesh when we couldn't just like hack the flesh a little bit? So maybe our spaceships could be a little bit better. I don't know. I, I've always thought you like that. It has to be up your alley. But anyway, that's my SpaceX story uh, because I believe for us to do that sort of stuff, we have to know way more about what our body's doing and way more about what our environment, including in a spaceship, is doing to us. And you were on the path of the spaceship way. Tell me what happened with your blood sugar and how you figured it out. Yeah, um, so it's funny. The process was almost like discovering that there are options for hardening <laughs> the body yeah. that I wasn't taking into account. And, and so that's kind of how things went. I was... I was uh, working on this program. It was by far the most stressful and 
probably the most serious and important part of my career at, at that time. Um, you know, I was leading a small team. We were developing the breathing apparatus um, and a number of other pressurized life support systems for the Crew Dragon capsule. And I'm, you know, relatively fit, I have to say. You know, I've been working out my whole life. I've played sports. I thought that I should feel really healthy and be performing really well being in my late 20s and, uh, you know, essentially as fit as I've ever been. That was not the case. I felt really unhealthy day after day and it was continuing continually declining and so i got to this yes okay i got i get this this is like my silicon valley experience too okay i, I feel you brother keep going <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's resonating yeah so it's just like day after day things are heading in worse directions and i'm getting to the point where every sort of work day is me with an iv drip of coffee dragging myself from one meeting to, the, to another and trying to maintain a facade of positive mood and maintain performance. And and really mood, I think, is what drove me because I felt like a different person mentally. I was not like I was losing my sense of humor. I was losing my determination. It was a lot of stuff that that really frustrated and confused me. Hypoglybitchy. Is that a is that a good word? <laughs> that's that that could work. Yeah, that that's a, <laughs> a great way to frame it. <laughs> um, and, and so but what was interesting is that um I was reading some research from Dom D'Agostino, actually, yeah. uh, in, in, uh, at the University of South Florida. And so Dom is, as you know, really one of the foremost ketogenic researchers out there. And this paper that I was reading was actually specific to my work. I was uh, designing oxygen life support systems, and I was reading this paper because it was discussing central nervous system toxicity. And essentially, this is what can happen to an organism if uh, in a high-pressure, high-oxygen environment for too long, you can actually suffer a, a seizure. So the brain, the, the oxygen uh, concentration is so high that the reactivity goes up and essentially tissues start to malfunction. You get a lot of reaction, reactive oxygen species and ultimately central nervous system goes haywire. And so uh, this was a situation I was thinking a lot about. And this paper that Dom had wrote, written uh, studied rodents in this environment, except that they put them in a ketogenic state. So they fed them a ketogenic right. macronutrient ratio. And this simple switch in diet extended the time to seizure by five times in certain in certain of the of the rodents and that paper like totally blew my mind i mean at this point i was a person who is kind of a calorie is a calorie absolutist work How out really hard ago? you can eat anything was this this was 2015 time frame 2015 okay. to 2016 so, so dom was i think it was guest number 40 out of 800 and something on bulletproof radio so 2014 this is this is when I had really Bulletproof was just coming out for executives called the Bulletproof Executive because like what you've dealt with, there are millions of other people working high stress, high cognitive capacity jobs with the word facade used. It, it's endemic. It, it's epidemic. It's everywhere. And I, I, I love the story there. You're like, okay, I got this. You read a paper on ketosis. You're like, oh, five times more resilience. Maybe I could use that. And yeah, it was just like, change? wait a minute. So, so you're telling me that there's a nutritional protocol that gives you essentially superpowers. And of course, this is extrapolating from rodents to humans. But I was just like, what am I doing to ensure that I'm making good decisions every day? You know, I feel like total garbage. doesn't matter how many hours I put in the gym. I don't yeah. feel, I certainly don't feel healthy. And I have no objective data to tell me that I am healthy. Um, so that led to, that first paper triggered like this something in me where I was like, I got to learn more about metabolism and physiology. This is it's like, this is so obvious. Every cell in my body needs energy. I don't feel any energy right now. So something's malfunctioning in this system. So I just started to research and dig into it. Um, and kind of as a byproduct, decided to start pricking my finger to measure blood sugar. And this was like yes. 
it's the primary energy molecule in the body. Might as well start there, right? It's the gas gauge. Um, so I started pricking my finger. I was getting a ton of random numbers. How'd you like that? Just pricking your finger every day. I, I did that in 1998 when the doctor told me maybe it's your blood sugar. Like how many times a day were you pricking? I, at one point I was pricking 60 times a day. Yeah. It, it sucks, right? <laughs> I did. I, man, you're like bringing, you're bringing me back. Okay. <laughs> so you've been there. I mean, it, it was, uh, not only was it uncomfortable and messy and weird, but also the data was not useful because I was only yeah. able to prick my finger when I had spare time. Right. And so I'm, it's like, I'm at home and I'm about to go to work or I'm, I'm about to go to sleep. And that's when I would prick a bunch of times to try and get any amount of uh, data stream. Right. And, and ultimately this didn't lead me anywhere. I just saw a scatter plot. It wasn't giving me any insight. Um, I read a book actually by Rob Wolf called wired to eat. And this was now early 2017. And that's yep. the first time that I had read about continuous glucose monitors. And so th he just has a blurb in the book and it's like, yeah, there's a device used for the management of diabetes, which streams glucose full time. And I was like, bingo, that's what I need. Went to my doctor and asked for one. He said, no, you don't, you don't have diabetes. You don't need it. Right. Um, I, so I kind of left confused continued to try to get one, ultimately did. And within two weeks, I had enough data to know that I was either borderline pre-diabetic or full-blown pre-diabetic, depending on who you ask. And this is all despite having less than 10% body fat and never having ever heard anything about my glucose from a primary care practitioner or, or really anyone up until that point. And, it was just total. And you were a CrossFit trainer at the time, right? CrossFit level one trainer. I'm now a level two. Definitely okay. you know, pushed hard in the gym, cared a lot about being healthy and just had this underlying May, Sorry, mayhem going. Exercise didn't fix your blood sugar all by itself? <laughs> That's not, oh, come on, man. Calories are calories. Exercise fixes everything. What, what, get with the program. I, I have to say, I think it even could be worse where yeah. the way that I was exercising was uh, highest intensity all the time, no matter, yes. no matter what. It's like I'm putting in 120% of my effort and potentially putting me into a chronically stressed, poorly recovered state. And so it was actually the case that I, I think my exercise was pushing me more into metabolic dysfunction and yeah. coupling with all of the work stress and the poor sleep and, the, and then, of course, the poor nutrition decisions because I didn't have a closed-loop feedback system. And, and so in combination, the whole environment of my body was just stress and destruction. I love closed loop feedback process, man. You're, you're saying words that are that are almost romantic uh, to another engineer, so you need to back off a little, man. No, I'm kidding. But uh, what is a closed loop feedback system for non engineers listening? So, there basically, if you're if you're designing a system that needs to be controlled in some way, let's just let's just say cruise control on a car. Um, there are two ways to do it. You can do an open loop system, which is uh, essentially you provide an input. You, you push the accelerator until the car is moving at a certain speed. And then you you don't take any other inputs, right? It's just that that's where the accelerator stays. And, and that's how fast the car goes. Um, and that's called open loop because you're not taking in new feedback. But then you could have a closed loop feedback system, which is where there are other sensors on the car that are, for example, measuring the distance to the car in front of you and feeding that back into the computer and saying, OK, slow down or speed up in order to maintain an, an appropriate safe gap. So the difference is that the system, number one, does not take into account any new, new information when it's making uh, inputs. System number two takes into account every decision that's been made prior and new information that's developing in order to improve the decisions being made. We as humans are living in a open loop environment, right? We're, we're flying blind essentially when it comes to our health. Every day you're making hundreds of decisions, hundreds of lifestyle choices 
that ultimately directly affect your risk of chronic illness and ultimate, and who you are and what you are composed of. And those compound in either a positive or a negative direction. And unfortunately, because we're flying blind, we're, we're in an open loop state, we don't get feedback on whether those are heading in a positive or negative direction for sometimes decades. I mean, in my case, if I hadn't stumbled on this, I could have ended up with a serious uh, and potentially much more harmful condition because I didn't get feedback until a diagnosis. So um, yeah, I think I think that the concept of open versus closed loop feedback is critical to bring into the mainstream of health and wellness. The idea of using blood glucose, which is a marker for how much of the most common energy is available in the blood right now and how good is your body at regulating it as a real-time feedback thing, it's it's really powerful. And I'd been you know fantasizing about an implantable when I first started pricking my fingers, uh, but we were still a ways away from that. Uh, when I was at uh, Basis, which was the the first company to get heart rate from the wrist reliably, it's the same tech that's now in the Apple Watch, and we sold it to Intel a long time ago. Um, I was thinking, how do I get blood sugar from the wrist? I need blood sugar, blood sugar, blood sugar, because it was it was a big fantasy. The first experience I had with it, though, uh, when I first started you know, Bulletproof Coffee and just writing about it, a lot of type 1 diabetics got in. They're like, oh, my God, this MCT oil is like a backup thing. So even if my blood sugar crashes, I don't go into a diabetic coma. So like, thank you. And one of them mailed me her Dexcom monitor. She's like, this is my old one. I got a new one. I know you'll like this as a biohacker. I'm like, yes, I finally got a CGM. And I played with it, but getting new sensors without a prescription, like you said, was a big issue. And we fast forward to now. Um, I, uh, I did get a prescription uh, for a CGM a few years ago, and I was on the Dr. Oz show. He's like, hey, what's that weird white thing on your arm? And I'm like, oh, this is my robot arm. It's got like my sensor and it's got my aura ring. And he's like, well, it looks weird, but okay, you know, it looks weird on camera. But once I said CGM, he knew right what it was because he's a, a very brilliant doctor. And um, um, it was still really hard to get. I had to order it from Europe and all sorts of hurdles. And then you guys come along at levels and you're like, oh, here, you know, we, we can just do it. And I was like, okay. But I didn't get that much value from just plain continuous glucose monitoring because I'm like, great, I have a graph, but I can't correlate it to my behavior. And I and I turn on the levels app. I'm like, oh my god, I can take a picture of my food and the level of control from having your app to just go, oh, I need to crank up the amount of protein, the ratio of protein to carbs, even though I'm eating relatively resistant starch in a meal to get my blood sugar to go to 120 after the meal for less than two hours instead of going up to 140, right? Like, okay, that's really useful because that blood sugar thing for brains and whatever else, it it matters. But if you want to live a very long time, high blood sugar, I mean, it cooks the inside of your, of your veins. It, it's correlated with all sorts of bad aging things, even if you have good blood sugar control just after a meal, if it spikes. So you're like, what's, what's spiking it? And I've, I've just had so much fun looking at my blood sugar. Going, wow, I wonder why I did that. Oh yeah. I only slept three hours last night. <laughs> That's why it went up as high as it did. And if this is invisible, um, even to someone who has a good sense of, of your body, you, you're very unlikely to know unless your blood sugar is like at you know, 65 or something, you're not really in ketosis. You'll just say, I feel like a zombie. Um, how many people do you think now um, are walking around with blood sugar regulation issues who just have no freaking clue? Well, you know, I, I can guess 
that it's significant, yeah. but I can give some stats from the CDC, which tell us that oh, it yeah. is significant. So right now, uh, the numbers are over 120 million Americans have prediabetes or diabetes. Is there a difference in your, in your opinion? Well, here's the thing is that we have these, these sort of mental models about health where you are healthy until you're not. And, and it's totally not true, right? There is no line in the sand where you suddenly fall into diabetes. We've drawn an arbitrary line on the, the metabolic health spectrum. And we've said, this here is diabetes, and this is slightly better, that's prediabetes, and then everything else is healthy. And it's completely, it's giving us this distorted perception of what's really happening, which is that all of us are prediabetic. And if we don't make the right choices, we will all be diabetic because that is the way the human body works. If you feed it the wrong inputs for long enough, you will ultimately end up with an insulin resistant state and gly- glucose dysregulation. Um, and so now we've got a situation where 90 million American adults have prediabetes, 84% of them don't know they have it. And how are you expecting us to write the ship when people don't know there's something wrong, right? I mean, there is no feedback loop happening for the, these people. And so we're heading in a direction where potentially uh, close to 200 million people could be type 2 diabetic by 2030, 2040. Just in the U.S. Just in the United States. And right now we have half a billion globally. And of course, most of this is happening in developing countries. And that number is increasing at an increasing rate due to the number of countries that are developing rapidly. And I think what's happening here is that, and again, this is just type 2 diabetes. The insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction epidemic touches far more than that. It, it, it crosses uh, from type 2 diabetes into obesity, Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, cancer. I mean, the list goes on. But what, what we're talking about here, just, let's, if we just talk about that type 2 diabetes situation, you know, how do we get there and why, why don't we know that we're going off the rails? Um, and, and as you mentioned, this stuff is invisible. And the reason I think it's invisible is that you know, for millions of years, humans were evolving in scarcity right? We were, we were just constantly in a state of fasting, like just hunting and gathering our way to the next calories. And so every calorie was a life-saving calorie. If you came across something that was edible, you eat it immediately because you, you needed it to survive. And so we never developed this sensory feedback mechanism for the quality of our nutrition. There was no reason for your body to say, oh, don't eat that. That's not good for you. Uh, because that, that actually was good for you because you would otherwise starve to death. Now we're in this sedentary situation, right? Where we are able to short circuit our, our metabolic systems, eating more, more processed carbs in a single sitting than a prehistoric human would come across in a lifetime. And now we, without that evolved sensory feedback mechanism, we're in trouble fast. And, and I think that's why we got, we got from barely 1% of the population having type 2 diabetes in 1960 to now well over 10% in climbing. It's... I think I'm just trying to remember in my head. I think it's two doctors, at least one who've been on the show who just flat out said pre diabetes is diabetes. And I am of that opinion. Uh, the, the fact that I have, you know, level three diabetes versus level 10 diabetes, uh, <laughs> it's a slippery slope. So what we're talking about there, if you get rid of, uh, in the data, you know, younger kids where it can be a problem, but it's less of an issue. Uh, and you're now looking at at least a third of people. So one out of three, and they don't have to be fat for this to be a problem. Okay. Now, if someone doesn't use the levels, continuous glucose monitoring stuff, how would they ever know? Well, right now, the state of things is pretty grim. It's it's a situation where we use... <laughs> 
<laughs> we use these metrics, which unfortunately are single point measurements, right? They, you go in once a year or, or even fewer times than that, and you get blood work and you get one point in time measurement. And that is usually your fasting glucose. For the most part, we, people don't get an A1C test, which is an average glucose uh, approximation, unless there's already a concern from a fasting glucose check. And the unfortunate thing is that fasting glucose is the last thing to go wrong. Um, the reason for that is that you are fasting and your body is in a state of stasis or close to it. What's actually happening is that your body's breaking down after every meal and after every lifestyle decision you're making. It's those moments of dynamic blood sugar response that really define whether or not you are metabolically healthy. So when I eat a meal that has carbohydrates in it, can my body process that? Or am I going to release a ton of insulin and my cells can't respond because they're insulin resistant and my blood sugar is going to stay high in the presence of that insulin? So that's the question. It's not whether or not 11 hours after dinner, my blood sugar is down in some arbitrary range. And so this is how we are where we are is we're using screening measures, which check one point, and then they extrapolate that to your entire health. And as an engineer, you know, you never define a system by one point. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous to, to imagine that you can predict how healthy someone is from, from one point measurement. So we, we really have to, you know, unfortunately, write the ship by proliferating this technology in a, in a very me mainstream way. It has to be the case because of that, you know, 84% of the 90 million Americans who have prediabetes because they don't know they have it. It has to be the case that they stumble upon it like me by trying an interesting product that tells them more about themselves. And, and in doing so, they discover, wow, this is not as good as I had expected. And luckily, because I've come across this, I can now make changes. Uh, otherwise, I otherwise, I just think either we have to implement some sort of social scale mandatory testing or like opt in testing or something, or you're just never going to uncover it. There's just you, you won't find it out. Of the couple trillion dollars that we spent on. Uh, on COVID testing. Do you think that that's saving more lives compared to spending a couple trillion dollars on blood glucose monitoring for the entire country to create healthier metabolisms? I, I totally don't expect you to answer that because that would be a, a PR nightmare, uh, but I will answer it. Here's the deal. <laughs> if you have blood sugar regulation problems, your risk of dying from all infections is much higher. So if we were interested in making sure fewer people died, we would make sure that we did what it took as a country to get our blood sugar under control. And it's just that simple. And if you're in the government and you're listening to this, do the math already. <laughs> this is a clear and present danger that's there every year that kills more people every year uh, than probably all viral infections put together, I would imagine. Uh, so like it, it's that big of a deal. I totally agree. It, it was interesting. I was, uh, well, my co-founder Casey, she's a Stanford trained surgeon turned functional medicine doctor. And then she joined levels because she realized how rampant the inflammatory problems of metabolic dysfunction were in her practice and in her surgery. But she wrote a, a an early uh, review of the, of the data on COVID and the connections to diabetes. And so that review was profound. It, I mean, in, in Mexico, for example, the mortality from COVID was twice as high for people that had diabetes. I mean, 200% likelihood of, of death. That's that's not minimal. What, what we should describe it as is the collision of two pandemics. You have a viral pandemic hitting a population that is already diseased. And uh, oh. the situation is that we can vaccinate ourselves from this strain of virus because luckily we have the technology to have quickly developed it. But there will be another one and there will be another one after that. And if our population isn't resilient enough to have an immune system that can fight viral infections because it is it is 
you know, frankly undermined or hampered by insulin resistance and all of the byproducts thereof, we won't ever get there. So it, it is incumbent on each individual person and I think also on society in general to improve our metabolic health and therefore the resilience of our entire population. And, and not just here in the U.S., but globally. I mean, this is, this is clearly, as we've seen from COVID, uh, it's a clear and present danger, as you said. When I go into the app and I say what I ate, you know, either type it in or take a picture, and then I can look, okay, how high did my blood sugar go up and how long did it stay elevated? The goal of eating foods where there's a moderate rise that goes down relatively quickly. You do that, it was the right meal, and if it goes you know, to 170 and stays there for two or three hours, maybe that shouldn't be what you eat regularly. <laughs> like it, and it can be different for different people, which is, which is really well established. Are you guys seeing enough data now? Uh, I know you've got like 75,000 people on your wait list, but do you have enough data to be able to say, oh, it turns out that everyone who drinks a diet soda or you know, eats a, I don't know, some kind of food, sees this and like these are the clear and present danger foods or do you not have that kind of data we we do have that so our data set is um we're currently taking in more data per week than we brought in for the entire first half of the company's life and, and so wow. the data set is now the largest of its kind in terms of uh continuous blood sugar information for people without diabetes paired with lifestyle information so no data set like this has existed and it's growing exponentially so the beauty of that is that um we will ultimately have the ability to do what you're asking right now. Um, we, we still, at this point, are in the early stages of uh, basically refining our data set and our approach to combing through it. And we have some phenomenal data science folks on our team that are bringing out some really brilliant insights. I, I can't yet state with confidence because we want to make sure that they're statistically significant and such. But let's just yeah. say that in the future, these data-driven insights, I think, will ultimately change the, the misleading marketing that is possible today with food. So you will not be able to trick an informed and data-driven audience with labeling because they will have feedback. So you say, this food is good for you or heart healthy, and your blood sugar goes to 170, like you said, for two to three hours and then crashes. But we know glycemic variability is closely related to cardiovascular disease. So that'll be an easy one. I am to the point, if a, if a food has heart healthy stamped on it, it just means don't eat it. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 what it means is it has no fat and especially no saturated fat, which is a, a precious nutritional substance. And when you eat it, it's basically just like mainlining sugar. Like you might as well just go have some ice cream. <laughs> Much of the time people are, so people come into the levels app, which, you know, by the way, the, the level system exists to answer the question, what should I eat and why with yeah. objective data from your and body when. in real time. When matters exactly. too. And when, and, and so you know, people come into the program and they have pre-existing notions built built on what we all have, which is, you know, without data, we have internet advice and we have food labeling and or maybe something that worked for a friend. And they come in and they're trying their regular their diet. And, and oftentimes, you know, people will be eating uh, oatmeal, right? And, and if you Google the healthiest breakfast, right, top, oh, look at a list of healthy breakfasts, top three, oatmeal is going to be on it every time. I mean, that's just how, like, that's what the internet says. And so people are eating oatmeal for breakfast and a large number, a significant portion. I, I, last time I checked, it was something like 70% of people in our data set who ate oatmeal had an extremely poor blood sugar response to it. And I mean, one of the worst that they would have through the, the entire program. And that is 
highly counterintuitive because oatmeal, we are told, is a heart-healthy breakfast. And of course, this doesn't mean that no one should eat oatmeal. I mean, I think to each their own. And also, there is that personalized element that we talked about. Some people yeah. are just fantastic carb metabolizers. But for those people who are eating it with the intention of being healthier, with the intention of treating their hearts right, I have to say, you know, it's a, it's important that we correct the record about oatmeal. It is not necessarily heart healthy and certainly only for a subset of the population. So it's just that that's the type of thing that becomes almost an urban myth and it gets spread. But but oatmeal has fiber. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> oatmeal actually has a surprisingly <laughs> small amount of fiber. I know. <laughs> I'm channeling idiocracy. Uh, where they they watered the world's crops with Gatorade because it had electrolytes and all the food died. And, you know, it's one of those things where just because it has one thing or some small amount of one good thing doesn't mean it's good for you because there's other bad stuff in there. Um, So I I love it. You're picking on oatmeal, uh, which is not not a good choice, uh, at least not for most people. And even for the people who do tolerate it, it's probably not a great choice. It's just tolerable. And it it feels to me like a lot of our foods, and a lot of this has to do with my, my new fasting book, a lot of our foods are, you can eat that and you won't starve to death, which is a really powerful thing to know. The problem is, you know, well, we've always eaten that because throughout history, a lot of our people were close to starving a lot of the time. So it just becomes food instead of that's the backup food for when you can't get stuff that works really, really well. And using data to circle around and be like, well, we can tell ourselves that that's good, but the data lies. And in your case, like, look, I'm working out, I'm doing everything right. And you know, you've got the pedal all the way to the floor and it's not going any faster. Uh, it was, it's very similar to what I went through. I'm like, God damn it. I'm going to exercise an hour and a half a day, six days a week, 18 months, and nothing will stop me because I will lose my weight. <laughs> like When it doesn't work, like, ah, maybe it should be two hours a day, right? Because the assumptions were flawed. And I've already, um, just in using levels over the past, oh, I'm guessing about nine months, uh, I've, I've been better able to follow my own advice. So a classical example um, I have said for years, you know, eat before it gets dark, you know, earlier dinner is better, but there's always school and whatever else. And it just, it tends to creep up, especially in winter. I'm in Canada where winter like, gets dark at like five 30. So I've been saying, all right, what happens if I eat at six to six 30 versus five to five 30? And there's like a 15 point difference in my blood sugar response within an hour of eating. So now I'm really a little bit more militant about eating a little bit earlier because I know it works better. Versus just saying, all right, uh, maybe I'll just skip dinner and I'll just eat lunch tomorrow because I really don't want to eat at a time when my body's really not ready for it. Uh, and to see those correlations, I couldn't see that when I stuck my finger because there's only so much that you can do. And I couldn't see that um, when I would just use uh, uh, the older CGM apps that didn't have the input your food, see what it did, and just the correlation tools. So I'm I'm truly blown away. That's why, by the way, I, I don't know if I, I don't think I mentioned this on the show yet. So I'm an advisor, I'm an investor and stuff like that. And also guys, um, partly because, because uh, of that. And also because I try to work out good deals for you. If you go to levels.link slash Dave, you get to go to the front of the line. Um, so there's like 75,000 people trying to get this. There's a backlog to get the devices. So if you want to be one of the first ones, uh, and this isn't like a financial thing, I'm not getting paid on that or anything. Um, this is just like, you know, Hey, like let's do a solid for bulletproof rated people. I just have to say, if you want to fast uh, or you want to have more discipline around your diet, there's nothing like 
saying, hmm, I'm hungry right now. And then you wave your phone over your levels thing on your arm. You can see mine right here. See, look at that. Oh, here, I'll flex for it. Make it look all cool. <laughs> but uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you saw that. Otherwise, you just heard rustling. But what happens is, is you wave your phone over it, and it says, oh, here's your blood sugar levels. And you're like, man, my body just told me I was hungry. But my blood sugar is 105. I got plenty of, of fuel present. Therefore, that feeling of hunger isn't something that's valid. And then you tell the cells in your body, shut up and use what you got and come back to me when you're actually hungry. And the process of doing that as a real-time feedback loop has been really helpful, even for me at you know 10 point whatever percent body fat, not insulin resistant and relatively dialed in as a biohacker, right? It, it still makes a giant difference just because when you're tempted, you check you're like, no, I, I really don't need that. And the data is so clear. Eating fewer meals per day equals less chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is the same thing as your mitochondria not being able to turn air and food into electrons. They're turning into some electrons and some inflammation. Another word for that would be insulin resistance because they couldn't turn the energy into electrons. So that, that closed loop has been massively illuminating for me. And yes, I wear my aura ring and I monitor all sorts of crazy stuff. But this is, uh, I would say... You might not like this. I'd say it's it's almost as important as monitoring sleep. And I think you need to get your sleep scores first, but you should get your continuous glucose right after your sleep score. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Yeah, so on that note, I mean, I think that the interesting thing for me has been discovering through CGM the importance of those sleep scores because when, when it's like, okay, I got a poor sleep score, but I don't really know what that drives, you know, it's sort of like, well, it was bad sleep, but I mean, what would happen if I just kept getting bad sleep? Well, then you put on a glucose monitor and I see that a five hour night of sleep versus an eight hour night of sleep is a 40% difference in how my body can metabolize my meals. That's when it clicks. Oh, okay. Got it. So when I, every time I get that poor sleep, I'm kicking myself in the head when it comes to my insulin resistance and my, my ability to metabolize the meals I'm giving. And rather than co compromising myself further with poor sleep, I need to be when, get, sorry, when, rather than compromising myself further with poor nutrition after poor sleep, I need to be even better about my diet because I know I've pulled, you know, one of those levers, the sleep lever, and I now need to make up for it by not pulling the nutrition lever too, because that's going to do double the damage. So that, that whole sort of context that, that I think real time biological information gives, it has been key to my understanding of, of not only sleep, but also, uh, just mental fitness, just mindfulness, being able to understand the mechanisms of stress in my life and trying to take control of them. 
So yeah, the the real time feedback loop with a, a molecule that is you know significant and contingent on the the meals I'm I'm consuming has been a game changer for me in understanding the the value of these other metrics. So you, you've had the same experience. Um, do you guys publish how many active users you have versus people trying to get it? Uh, we we don't publish it, but I think right now we have something like twelve hundred active users at any given time, and we're you know we're still in that in that small invitation only beta mode. Dave, you just read out the link, so if people want to come and join us, you know this is basically part of the process of developing the product. We're rapidly iterating on features. We're taking in customer feedback and essentially creating the product that we believe is going to be intrinsic to the sustained behavior change across you know long time periods that is necessary for us to write the the metabolic health ship here and here in abroad so if you want to be a part of that you know please join us and we'll be slowly increasing that volume um and as you mentioned we have close to eighty thousand people on the wait list right now and um tons of insatiable demand and we're looking forward to being able to launch to the broader public uh, once we finish this development process uh, well it's uh it it's something I can't wait for. I think a lot of listeners are going to say, I want to do this uh, to at least get an understanding. And you've got some really cool medical advisors. All but one of them have been guests on Bulletproof Radio, which made me laugh. Uh, Dom D'Agostino, uh, David Perlmutter, a very close friend, Dr. Molly Malouf, um, who is also a friend, uh, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. I mean, these, these, are, these are cool people who are very knowledgeable and looking at, okay, how do we get people who are working with, um, you know, with the public and with patients and then saying, how do we make this usable? This is the first usable, uh, just easy to use zero inconvenience CGM that I've come across. So I, uh, I want to push you to move your launch date up. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, I think there's gonna be a lot of people on your waiting list excited to do that. Now there are other wearables that are out there. Uh, even some kind of blood based ones. How is this different from other wearables that are out there? Well, right now, um, the the wearable market kind of consists of uh, what I, I like to refer to, and this is not judgmental in any way, but there's there's sort of superficial metrics, which are heart rate, step count, um, occasionally body temperature, which I think is actually really valuable, uh, heart rate variability, which is, I would say body temperature and heart rate variability of those two are the most valuable. Um, but what, the reason I call them superficial is because they're outside the body. It's They're available to be measured for the most part with your finger. You know, you can measure your pulse with your finger. You can count your steps. Um, and so now with CGM, we're crossing that barrier and we're going kind of below the skin to an invisible metric that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. And, and so that's why we're calling this biowearables. Um, this is a, a brand new space. People are traditionally only using kind of the consumer product wearables that are out there, um, which are admittedly value. I mean, I have two on right now. I wear my Garmin 245 and my whoop strap and, um, and you know, I, I love them, but I think that the future of this technology is incorporating more real-time molecule measurement in the body and then using that to close these feedback loops to better understand holistically where I land on the health spectrum and where I need to go. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know where the 10,000 steps a day actually came from? I actually don't. I've read about this recently and I've, I've blanked on it. I, I figured this out when I was at Basis, the the risk tracking company. I did all this research, and in some time, it was either fifty two or fifty six, like nineteen fifty two. Uh, the first ever wearable pedometer it was a mechanical one that clipped your belt. It was from a Japanese company. They made up ten thousand steps a day. 
And there is no data to back that up. And we have been saying that ever, get your 10,000 steps a day because of the power of marketing. It's exactly the same type of behavior that says oatmeal is a healthy breakfast. (laughs) So just saying, so those are superficial metrics. Yeah, it's, you know, I I think if, if there's something that is encouraging people to get more steps in, you know, maybe they selected that number because it was like, 150% 150% of what most people would get in a day. And so they're like encouraging them to push. I don't know, maybe it came out of thin air, but it, as long as it is encouraging people to move in the right direction, like I'm glad they did. So I think that the, the opportunity that is ahead of us, which is to, to take something that is totally on sort of, I, I would say ill-defined, which is our nutrition. And, and frankly, it gives people so much confusion and lack of confidence. Every day, you're sitting down, you're going to eat lunch. What do you eat and why? Again, we're going back to the internet. We're going back to a friend. Uh, we're, we're, we're hoping and praying. Um, and then we're not finding out until the bathroom scale increases, you know, weeks or months later, or we have some sort of poor diagnosis. And, and then how do we know what to change? Um, so I think the real beauty here is that this is this is an opportunity to provide immediate confidence to give people that closed loop feedback. You get your meal scores in the in the levels app. You get your day scores in the levels app. You understand your trajectory, and then you get insights that tell you this is a low hanging opportunity. Like you can you can very easily add a walk after this meal, or uh, by simply substituting this ingredient for another one, you get such better blood sugar control and therefore hormonal control. And uh, that's the opportunity I think that we have ahead of us is, is to give each individual an ideal personalized sort of lifestyle that they can follow. And they don't have to worry about what the rest of the world is doing. It's not about applying an average to each person. It's taking each person, optimizing them, do that times many, many people, and you get the same social scale change. The personalization is is such a big thing here. There's some confounding factors when when I think about it. Um, you look at what, uh, say, my friends over at Viome are doing, and they're saying, we can predict based on your gut bacteria what your blood sugar level will be based from food. And they've got pretty good correlative data there where they can say, hmm, this probably is going to spike. Oatmeal is going to screw you up or it's not. And that science is always getting tighter. But the thing is, then you get a bad night's sleep or you eat some industrial meat with antibiotics that shift to your gut bacteria before you send in your next test. And so the, the feedback time of every meal, you know, a few times a day, what, how am I doing? And, and then even when you're checking it, you're not just getting that one point, you're getting stored data. So at the end of the day, you have a full curve showing what did your blood sugar do even when you were in a meeting and you didn't check it. So you can tune it, but you can also incorporate advice, you know, for instance, maybe intermittent fasting. I don't know. There's a book about that. You know, maybe that's going to be helpful, but you can see, does a 14 hour window work better for you? Does an 18 hour window work better? Are you overdoing it because now you're getting insulin resistant? Um, Maybe it's a really bad idea to do that on when you're having your period, right? Like all all of those things are going to be testable with daily changes. And I found it, it really didn't take long for it to become really clear the things that were causing the little spikes. And there are other spikes that are beneficial and surprising and useful. Like you get an infrared sauna, your blood sugar is going to go up. You you lift heavy, your blood sugar goes up. And that's because your body is actually using cortisol to make extra blood sugar from your muscles or maybe from your fat. Or I do the biocharger. I had an episode about that a while ago. This is a pulsed electromagnetic frequency, very cool sort of Tesla-esque thing. You sit there on certain programs, but not all of them, you get a spike in blood sugar as it's doing stuff to your cells. And so you're like, wow, 
I can see that A leads to B. And to me, that sense of knowledge and control, it's it's kind of liberating because otherwise it's just this cloud of mysterious. I know stuff happens to me. I don't know why. Right. Um, yeah, no, you, the, the yeah. being able to provide, you know, dot connections for people is so huge. Like I like to call them receipts, digital receipts for micro optimizations. So you now you do a little thing, make a tweak, and then you can see whether or not it helped. That's that's something we've never had. It's been, oh, you know, I think I feel better after, you know, after closing the blinds or putting putting blackout curtains in my room. I think I feel better and I'm sleeping better. Your recovery score tells you that. You know, now we yes. can do that with nutrition. I think that this new diet is working for me. Well, now now I can know, right? I can I, I can connect these molecules, they the hormones they drive um, to long term outcomes I want to avoid. And so if I can watch those fluctuations minutes after consuming something. I know with confidence which direction I'm compounding in, you know, with my lifestyle choices. And and that's something that I think is truly liberating and will ultimately give, I think, people not only a better understanding of themselves, but better confidence in the, in the decisions they're making every day. Do you ever use your your levels to, to sort of do the wrong thing? Like, I really want to eat that giant piece of cheesecake. And you're like, but I know my blood sugar is going to go up, so I'm just going to pound a bunch of chromium and take a couple extra metformins and, you know, do some squats and I'll manage it. <laughs> Well, I definitely, uh, <laughs> I haven't done all of the above. <laughs> that was a yes. I saw it in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely use it as a device to improve uh, indulgences, right? So I yeah. know, like the biggest one for me is just walking. Um, and, and that was something that I, I would never have believed before the power of a quick, like just 20, 15 minute walk around the neighborhood, casual, uh, the power that that has. After me, you're saying? after an indulgent meal yeah. to, to modify yeah. the the blood sugar response. So that's something I've now like almost habitually added to my lifestyle is if I'm going to eat something with a, little, a few extra carbs, or if I'm just going to go all in and eat half the cheesecake, I'm going to, to finish it, put my plate in the sink and I'm going to go walking and I'm just going to enjoy the, the sights and sounds and talk to, you know, a friend or, or call my mom or whatever it is, but I'm going to go for a walk and I'm going to enjoy it. And I know because I've tested this time after time after time, my posterior chain, the muscles in my, in my legs are sucking that glucose right out of the bloodstream without insulin. And that is improving my body's ability to handle that indulgent kick to the system that I just gave myself. And it, it, it allows me to, you know what, frankly, I, I have a sweet tooth and I love dessert. And so it allows me to go ahead and go off the rails here and there, but do it in a slightly better way than I used to. And also, let's face it, if you eat a dessert that has 25 grams of sugar in it, so relatively sweet, but not like a 100-gram Frappuccino Extreme Explosion Rainbow Juice, whatever, um, but you know, a, a reasonable dessert that's delicious and sweet and all that, and because you're able to say, oh, well, I had a, a fat and a protein uh, meal before I had dessert, and I'm going to go for a walk, and maybe I'll take some supplements, or maybe I'm taking the probiotics that lower my blood sugar. By the way, I see a difference on my levels from those as well. Um, I have permission to do this, and it might do something slightly bad to your microbiome, but not very if you do it on occasion. So then you're doing it without taking the hit, and you go for a walk. I live in Canada where it's dark and rainy all winter, so my kids make fun of me because if I have something sweet, which I don't do it that often, but I do sometimes, and you should be able to handle that if you're healthy. But yeah, I'll do you know 20 or 30 air squats, same thing, posterior chain, or I'll stand on a vibration platform. And they're like, Daddy, you know, you're dumb. And I'm like, well, yeah, but my blood sugar is stable, so it's all good. <laughs> but knowing that, 
I, I wouldn't do that if I did not have my levels because I, I've, I've seen the advice. How I've quoted all the studies about 20 minutes of walking a day and doing after meals, but it's raining. Like I'm just not going to, but now I'm motivated. So that motivation for me is, is awesome. And uh, the, the idea of monitoring and getting feedback has been a, a center part of me just disproving. So I was doing everything that was supposed to work. So for 20 plus years, it's been at the core and it feels like every year it's getting easier and easier and easier. In 2003, I was working on a stick on heart rate monitor. You had to like glue it to your chest and it was a thousand bucks and you had to have a prescription and it was, oh, it's in your watch. Like it just doesn't even matter. So what's next though? I mean, you, you guys have this nailed. Are, are you going to be adding other sensors? Am I going to have to like have a row of these like level sensors going all the way down my arm? Like some sort of, you know, robot from altered carbon? Like, like what? Tell me, tell me the future. You're a space guy. I mean, you have to know the future. No, you'll just completely replace the arm altogether. It'll just be a bionic. With one you know, big sensor. <laughs> Sensors are going to be integrated. Uh, no, I, I think the direction we're heading is no doubt about it. We, we've opened a new market, which is that, uh, you know, the, the non-therapeutic use case for what is ultimately medical technology. You know, this was developed in, in the medical environment. It was developed for the management of diabetes. But we're showing that the opportunity to uh, ultimately give people the empowerment in their health and wellness before they have something go wrong uh, is here to stay, right? So this technology, CGM, is going to innovate. It's going to get better and better, just like the heart rate monitor did. And ultimately, I think we're going to have some sometime in the future non-invasive means. But for the time being, we're just going to get better and better versions of what you're wearing. And we're going to be, and, and levels will be, I think, intrinsically involved in this innovation, expanding the number of analytes that we're monitoring. Um, you know, the big ones are hormones. I, I'm, I'm very yeah. excited and optimistic to get to the point where we can have real-time insight into not just glucose, but insulin, which is what I really want to measure. I want to know what's yeah. happening with my insulin levels. And then cortisol, you know, and, and eventually I think we can also add in uh, maybe LDL or triglycerides or some some other lipid marker that would be interesting. And together you can have a really good insight and, and, and also ketones. And I think you'll then have oh, yeah. a really good insight into in real time um, how is my hormonal condition in response to the fuels I'm consuming and what fuel am I burning? You know, based on your glucose and your real-time ketones, you can have a, a really fantastic understanding of how your body powers itself. And, and then you can change those ratios by, you know, say doing more fasting or doing more fasted exercise, which encourages the activation of, of body fat stores and gets you into a state that allows you to more easily oxidize what you've got on you. And, and so, I, you know, and that's the, the concept of metabolic flexibility. But overall, that's the direction I think we'll head. It won't be, you know, a whole <laughs> row of sensors. I think we're going to see a really nicely consolidated yeah. single puck that you'll wear. Uh, if you would uh, just real quickly add thyroid and melatonin uh, in on that list, uh, I'd love to see those hormones as well. Uh, by the way, all of these are circadian hormones, every single one on your list. So then where we're going to get is, what is it you're doing with your food? What is it you're doing with your movement? And what is it you're doing with your sleep and your light? And those are the major variables of biohacking. There's also, you know, vibration and EMFs and whatever, but the big ones are those. And of course, temperature sensing, which is already a solved problem. Uh, and then you've really got all of the things you can manipulate. And then it just comes down to, okay, which ones do I have to manipulate for myself, given my current state to get the output I want from my brain and my body? And that's hard. But when you have a hundred million people putting their data into a system, it'll be pretty darn easy to say, well, you know, the most likely solution for you is this, because this is what worked for the other 6,000 weirdos like you out of the hundred million. And this is shortcutting 
2000 years of medicine of what, what we've been doing with traditional Chinese medicine, with Ayurveda, with all of the historical research, like how do we just better manage the human body? And I feel like we're so close in our lifetime this is accessible. The AI work is is there and it's improving. The sensing is working. The costs are dropping for all the stuff we need to do. So I, I don't see a lot of stuff stopping us, but you probably, you might have other ideas. What, what's the most likely thing to slow down that vision? Well, I, I think there's a number of, of things that are currently adapting in real time. I, I, I actually believe that we're going to see massive progress very quickly. I'm, I'm very optimistic. And, um, you know the technology, as you mentioned, the technology that's necessary, the the uh, the machine learning, the large data sets, and the way that we can manipulate and understand them, and then also the hardware. You know, the, there are some really fascinating concepts that uh, are currently in place in sensors, but there's also you know more DNA-driven sensor technology that's coming available. It's in it's in the research world. It's been demonstrated, and we just need to move that from academia into uh, real consumer products. In order to do that, you got to show that there is a market and that people are are willing to use it. But most importantly, you have to show that it works, right? So that's what that's what we're doing is the first step is show that this is meaningful, show that people should care about their metabolic health and improving it. And that will be everything that's necessary for, I, I think, uh, new innovators to come to the space and bring their new technology. And, you know, if anything, we've got some regulatory environment and and sort of some I think old policies that tend to be very onerous to, to get a new technology to market. And I understand for medical technology, it's important to make sure that there's efficacy and that there's safety. But um, at the same time, we had a microelectronics revolution. We had a software revolution. And many of these regulations were written decades before either of those. And it's like the pace of process of progress has outpaced our regulatory ability to keep up. And I think there might be a need to revisit some of that. When I worked on that stick-on cardio patch uh, years ago, uh, we looked at the cost of doing this as a medical device. And it's not even invasive. And we said, screw this noise. We're going to go to Med City in India, and we're going to go to Singapore. And we're able to do our clinical trials way, way cheaper than in the U.S. And I'm a little concerned that for a lot of this stuff, if the regulatory North American, both the U.S. and Canada, if, if they don't become a little bit more entrepreneurial, about this, we're all just going to be buying our sensors from overseas and sending our data overseas as well. So regulatory is an issue, but I'm surprised you didn't mention privacy because you know people are are questioning where their data goes and who owns it and all that. I'm happy for my data to be used to help other people figure out how to manage their blood sugar better. Um, but I'd be kind of pissed if you're like, this is Dave's blood sugar. You know, do you guys want to buy that with my name and stuff associated? What does the privacy situation look like with you guys? I should have actually asked this before I invested in you, but I didn't. I'm glad you brought this up. And we're we're currently drafting I what I think is the most comprehensive yet straightforward and accessible privacy policy that I'm aware of. In, in other words, okay. it is written in plain English and it tells you exactly what's happening with your data and why. And it gives you full control. So uh, one of the core values uh, of levels is uh, openness and integrity. And, and well, those are the two, two of the core values. And those both combine into our privacy policy, which is that, um, you know, the first day that I walked into a doctor's office and asked for a CGM, I was told, no, I can't have access to the CGM because I wasn't already sick. And that felt, a vi- felt like a violation because not only did it not make sense that I couldn't have one until I was sick, it also felt like this is my body and this is data that is happening inside my body that it's I should have access. It's a human rights issue. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. And, and I think yeah. 
I should be the one granting access to other people, including my doctor, to see my blood sugar information. I should not be requesting that. Amen, brother. Yeah, so so that is the the under the underlying foundation that we're bringing to levels is that you, the individual, own your data. You can have it removed. You can export it. Do whatever you want. We will never sell it to a third party, and we will only share it in an anonymized form with others for research purposes if we have your approval. And ultimately, that's that's the intention: is that you know the data set is not a business model for advertising. The data set is a means, I think, to changing the future of metabolic health by driving large scale research and helping us to understand how people are living, what is improving outcomes, and and uh, you know where the opportunity is to, I think, remove the the biggest offenders for for worse health. Uh, that is one of the the cleanest and most concise answers I've ever heard to that question. Uh, because uh, it's an issue. And, and if we just understand, look, it's it's my data, right? And I'm, maybe I'm willing to share it under the right conditions. But the fact that it's mine and I have the right to take it back, um, it, it's a very solid view. And it's completely the opposite of the way uh, Big Pharma has been looking at it and the regulatory environments have been looking at it. And I think uh, we're going to end up in a situation where there's a group of people who just understands this. And if, if this group, it includes you and me, you know, if if we increase our influence and help people think about that, uh, we're we're just going to end up in a world where you have the right to know anything going on in your body without a permission slip, and that is how it's supposed to be. And if we let it go the other way, only a marketing company or an oppressive government will have rights to it, and you won't even get to know, uh, or maybe an insurance company. And that's a dark world, and it's a world we don't want to create. So I, I would encourage all of you guys listening, uh, if you're you know, sharing your, your data with something or another, who gets to see it, ask the questions. And especially for small companies like levels, if you don't like it, you can send them an email and say, what do you, what do you think? You're not going to just take this and, you know, sell it to some guy who's going to try and push some pharmaceutical stuff on me later, unless you're cool with that. And you might be, but you should know. So thank you for being super clean and ethical on that. And, um, just for real clear disclosure, I truly did not know what you'd say there, even though I'm an investor. When I do diligence, I, it's a question I always ask, and I don't know why I didn't ask. I think because we were, we were rushing it, and um, Andreessen Horowitz was about to do it. And anyway, I, uh, I'm very happy I backed you, and, and you just made me very, very calm with your answer. I was going to have to yell at you. <laughs> so. No, I, uh, you know, it's, again, it's something that the, there is no sort of, in my opinion, there is no other option. The, the only way to, uh, in, in my opinion, turn around the issues with advertising and misleading marketing is to stop targeting people for um, for information that you know about them that they don't know about themselves. That That's what it comes down to is the reason we're in, I think, a mess right now is that uh, tech companies have your data. They know what they have. You don't know what they have, and they can use it against you. And it is really critically important, especially when it comes to health and wellness matters that the individual is armed with their data first and foremost. They know what they have and they allow others to get access to specific parts of it if they are willing. And again, like you said, some people are, are going to be able to post this on the internet. That's that's totally up to them. I think that, that is, a, again, an individual right. But at the organizational level, there's just absolutely no defense for something like that. 
Have you ever thought about adding a feature so that if the device senses that your blood sugar is going up because you ate the wrong stuff, that it can remotely shock you so that you'll behave yourself better? <laughs> That's funny. There is a device out there, I think, that uh, that does something yeah. similar. It's a behavior there change mechanism. It's called the Pavlock. I, I invested in those guys a very small amount because it was too funny not to invest, not because I'm sure I'll ever say anything. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I um I have to admit that I've thought like we should at least have that feature because I would take advantage of it. I mean <laughs> if I can improve my accountability measures by any means, I, I'm gonna consider it. <laughs> Crazy enough, it actually works. But you really want to be the guy who controls that button because <laughs> remote control shocking of humans has really, really dark implications if you've ever had a dog on an electric collar. So uh we won't be going there. But the uh, the other question I have for you, I've talked a lot about electromagnetic frequencies and how you know, chronic exposure to low levels of them actually does affect you metabolically through voltage-gating calcium channels and things like that. What is the level of EMF coming off the device when I'm not scanning it? So the <clears throat> Libre device and you know the the manufacturing company that, that produces those has all the specifics they which are not necessarily released but we do know that it uses near field communication so it's an uh, essentially essentially a passive product where what you're wearing on your arm emits due to the sensor or the reader coming into uh, near field with it so basically when you move your phone over it it activates a transmission protocol so it is not to my knowledge and this is necessary to preserve the battery life of the sensor. Uh, it is not continuously streaming data uh, in the way that Bluetooth does. Now, there are other CGMs that have Bluetooth on and uh, on them, and they are uh, kind of emitting a low-energy Bluetooth field all the time. But uh, my understanding of the near-field communication protocol that's implemented in that sensor is that it is not doing so. The, the way it works, um, at least the last time I dug really deep on this when I was doing uh, the basis thing, is that you create a, a field uh, with your phone and the field activates <laughs> the stuff in the puck on your arm and actually provides the electrical charge for it. Much like when you have your key card, uh, you know, there, there's no battery inside your key card and you wave it over the door. The door creates a field, you wave it through the field, the field creates enough current to cause the microelectronics inside to emit a small signal. So it is as low EMF as you could possibly get because there's no EMF until you put a field on it. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, so there in 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 the patch that, that you're wearing, there is actually a, a small little battery, but uh, what's that? What that's doing is it's waking the sensor uh, to take measurements and record them into on onboard storage. So it's a continuous recorder. It's true. There there would be an EMF from that, but it's micro micro. Okay, about as minimal as it can get. So you're not okay. you're not necessarily broadcasting something. And compared to even an aura ring, it's orders of magnitude lower. Um, the aura ring, you can put it in airplane mode though, and that turns that turns off the transmissions. But it also has a little bit of an, a microprocessor because it's got to take measurements throughout the day, even if it's not broadcasting them. And for for people listening who are really into, you know, five G is going to you know neuter mankind and all that stuff. All of these things are, are small hits, but this kind of device is, is so tiny compared to the fact that you're walking down a street surrounded by Wi-Fi routers uh, that I don't worry about this. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong. And if you guys think I'm wrong, send me some stuff and I'll read it. Uh, but overall, I, I look at benefit versus risk and EMF is not an issue for me with this device at all. Uh, and I care about it. So, okay. Yeah, I think on the on the risk benefit there, you know, 
as we've mentioned in the statistics, metabolic dysfunction is ravaging us. And I think that those, those numbers, you know, focusing there and using a technology like this um, for however long the, the, the individual wants to use it, I, I think it will be a, an educational tool and something that you can use for a very long time into the future. So it probably provides, you know, a tremendous benefit in, in the face of the risk that we're all kind of facing. I find that sometimes when I, I, after the 14 day period, when the sensor dies and you have to get a new one, um, I'll take it off. And sometimes I replace it right away. Sometimes I wait a few days for whatever reason. I haven't figured out why I wait a few days. Um, how many of your users are just, okay, I got to put it right back on right away. And how many of them are like, ah, you know, it's okay if I missed a day or two. Well, we have, um, we have different personality types there. So uh, I think there is a, probably about a 25% of our, of our audience is like, is the hyper focused, you know, they basically, and I'm one of these, I'll put my next sensor on before I take my other one off. And so I'll, it'll be warming up before the other sensor comes off <laughs> the calibration process. Um, so I, I like to have that continuous data stream because it's just the accountability piece for me. You know, I've learned a lot of lessons from CGM, but the, the best part of it is that I know I'm going to see that data. It's going to keep me on the straight and narrow. So I think it's about 20 to 25% of our current user base. Uh, the rest tend to take a little time in between sensors. Some people even take a month or two off in between uh, months of use. You know, we have a, a few people that'll that'll just take a break and they'll implement some lessons learned and then they'll check back in and they like to see how have things improved over that time, that time span. And I think both of those are perfectly, you know, righteous ways to approach this. It's, it's up to the individual how you want to use your own data every day um, and whether or not you want to just do this in, in chunks. And I, and I think that uh, ultimately at levels, we're developing the product in such a way that you can use this however you see fit. You know, we're going to meet you where you are. There's no necessary you know, requirement that you are wearing this continuously. We certainly respect and understand the people that want to. Uh, but if you want to check in here and there, take some time off, totally get it and, and want to just build it so it's effective for you as well. Now, when you launch uh, openly, it's three ninety nine for the first month, and that includes all the sensors you need for the first month, hardware, software, everything. And then after that, it's one ninety nine a month, uh, which is for people who wear it continuously. And if you're looking to save a little bit of money, like okay, I'll wear it three weeks out of the month or something, you could stretch that. Um, do you see the price, you know, coming down three, four, or five years from now? Definitely, yeah. One of our so we wrote a blog post on this, um, and it's called the. Uh, the level secret master plan. And we ripped that off from Tesla. So when Elon started Tesla, he wanted to make electronic or electric vehicles sexy and cool. And he wanted to, uh, but what he really wanted to do was uh, change the world. He wanted to reduce carbon emissions due to uh, internal combustion engines. And so the first step that he took is the sexy cool route. He initially needed to convince people that it's possible to produce a desirable electric vehicle so that they would pay attention. And what he built was the Tesla Roadster, which was a very expensive premium car and very few people could get their hands on it. It came down to like the core technology was was very expensive. But with that first Roadster, he was able to finance then the Model S. With the Model S, was able to get into a slightly lower tier of still premium car buyer. Um, and ultimately, the scale of the Model S is what allowed for the Model 3, which is the first mass market electric vehicle ever. And it has changed the the dynamics of the automotive industry completely. There's not a single major manufacturer in the world who is not now building electric vehicles into their roadmap because they have to compete with Tesla. So we're taking a similar approach in the sense that right now the technology is expensive. You know, these sensors, 
um, are, are not affordable because they are medical devices. There's a heavy regulatory burden on not just developing them, but then continuing to manufacture them and ultimately to, uh, to distribute them, right? So all of our devices are fulfilled through a pharmacy partner. Uh, there's a prescription requirement, all of that we we've implemented into our program. So right now we're in this because you had to by, by rule of regulation, a lot of which isn't even law, (laughs) like regulators aren't writing laws. They're just writing rules that they thought were cool. Uh, that usually protect some industries, including attorneys, because the regulators are mostly attorneys. Um, so there's there's a lot of price in there that isn't for the tech; it's for the rules. That's exactly okay. right. So there, the beauty of that, you know, it's a it's a situation that we're in today. But the nice thing is that much of that is going to change. It's going to change quickly, and that will allow us to get to our end state, which our end state is: this is technology that is changing behavior in order to change the world. We want to completely improve the rampant metabolic dysfunction that is attacking every developed nation. And we want to turn it around. You know, right now, uh, there was a a study in 2018 that said that 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy in some form. We need to flip that ratio. It needs to be 12% at most are metabolically unhealthy. In order to get that, we've got to have a mainstream change. Uh, That means this this can't be a $400 per month program. It's got to be much more affordable. And frankly, it has to be something that employee wellness programs provide and that is, you know, more, more available. And so we're going to get there and we're going to have to do it iteratively by sort of building out first the premium product and then slowly but surely getting down market. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Some people get pissed off at that answer. I actually can buy gluten-free muffins at the first garage in all of North America. It turns out it's on Vancouver Island. And the guy who built that garage only had a quarter mile of road, and he had to bring his car in by railroad, which was easy because he owned the railroad, which is why he could afford to build a garage and have a car because he was a tycoon. Cars are a little bit more accessible now. (laughs) Cell phones, same thing. You know, it it was the Hollywood producer paying $25 a minute with his $40,000 cell phone filling the trunk of his Mercedes 300D convertible. Okay, now it's a dollar a month in Africa. So it'll happen for this stuff too. And and if you're listening to this going, what the heck? It'll come down over time. And it's okay that early adopters pay stupid amounts of money to get a slight benefit because it always increases demand, which always drops the price. And this is just how economics work. So you can be thankful that there are people willing and able to spend 400 bucks to be doing it for their first month because either they're sick enough, they're tired enough, or they're just curious enough. And to them, it's worth it. And that investment over time, it will drop the price. Everything I've ever talked about on the show will be orders of magnitude cheaper 20 years from now. That's just how it works. It's just irritating when you want it now. <laughs> so your, your master plan holds water according to all of history that I can find. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote with you there. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. You know, and I think another thing is that the the scale of the, you know, non-diseased market is much larger than the scale of the post-diagnosis market. Like we have way more people still, despite the bad the badness of the situation, there's still way more people who don't yet have diabetes. And so bringing it to this new space means massive potential demand and even even faster rates of, of, I think, supply improvement and then price drop. So I, I'm very optimistic. I, I, I like what you said there. It, if you had succeeded in the vision already and we flipped it so it was 12% of people, not 88% of people, we would not have a pandemic right now. Because 
most people who die have two and a half comorbidities and they're always blood sugar related. One of them, I would say, I don't have the exact number, but the vast majority of it because diabetes precedes cancer and cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So if we had proper blood sugar control, the entire world would be more resilient to all kinds of stuff. So, you know, that that's the order of magnitude we're talking about. But you did say cool and sexy. Now, I, I've just got to say, okay, I'm wearing my levels patch if you guys are watching on YouTube or on Instagram. So I've got it on my arm here. Can you make like a, a Paris Hilton approved, like, like sparkly bling thing for me maybe here? Uh, or, or like a little or a smaller sticker. I don't always want to wear a big sticker on my arm and a little smaller. Well, it's that, that's the, uh, so we're going to go in the direction of like Apple watch, right? They've got all these cool bands and stuff and even whoop, you know, they've got this, the different yeah. bands. I think we're going to have an array of options, right? We want to make sure that this, this fits the individual. And, um, you know, so that, that cover you're wearing right now, that was developed for people who are hitting CrossFit workouts and ripping the thing off on, yeah. you know, doing dips and stuff. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sweating a lot and swimming a lot and, and that's, it's really resilient. But what we want is for everyone to be, uh, proud and comfortable wearing the levels device okay. and they, they want to share it with people. So I'm, I'm very open to, um, to all types of feedback on how to make that happen. I, I want a Mad Max style, like leather with a few spikes that, that go in here. So I can like, I can feel really like a, like a cyberpunk again. So that that's my vote. And there'll probably be an aftermarket for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be the only customer. There's that. Uh, all right, Josh. And thanks for walking us through uh, what's going on with levels with continuous glucose monitoring. Um, thanks for uh, deciding that this was a, a bigger thing to hack than even what you were doing with astronauts. And I, I think that you're putting your energy into the right place uh, because this is going to help a lot of people. It's going to help them really quickly. And frankly, it'll probably help them become better astronauts too. Dave, thanks so much for going through it with me. I mean, I, I always love this stuff. I, I really appreciate the fact that we've had basically the same perspective on this, it sounds like. So um, just awesome to chat with you, and I appreciate doing it. If you guys are interested, levels.link slash Dave, go to the front of the line. It isn't quite shipping for everyone yet. I'm one of the few lucky early beta testers. Uh, it helps to be an investor. Uh, but this is coming down the pipe, and I will tell you, if you're a biohacker, if you're looking to change your motivation for fasting, for your diet, for anything else, and you just want to know what works, every activity you do has a return on investment that isn't dollars. It's did it take a small amount of energy and did it give you a big amount of energy back? When you learn to regulate your blood sugar by changing your behaviors, by definition, it gives you more energy back because you're better at using blood sugar to make energy. So this is one of those things where it's not difficult to use it. And the return is very, very large and it lasts for a very long time. So this passes my bar and then some, and if you guys are going to love it, levels.link slash Dave, and that puts you in front of the line. Thanks guys for listening. And I will see you on the next episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.